Welcome to Understanding Worldviews, Buddhist and Confucian. I'd like to take you on a trip around the world, halfway around the world. Does this look familiar to any of you? Where do you think it might, uh, where this picture might have been taken, where this is? Thailand, Japan, China? How about Louisville? Nine miles away. Um, the Tibetan Buddhist Center in Louisville on Hubbard's Lane, not too far away. How about this scene from halfway around the world or uh, downtown Denver, the Buddhist temple, temple not too far from Coors Field, or South Philadelphia, not too far from Center City. Today there are over 2,400 Buddhist temples in the United States and growing. Some verses to keep in the back of our minds as we enter into this uh, very foreign topic. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against every spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The light shines in the darkness, John says in his introduction, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to meet together. Thank you for the opportunity to look at the, the beauty of your world, the diversity of the world. So many peoples that you created, and yet so many peoples who don't know you yet. Guide us, keep our hearts humble and learning, and pray that you would um, give us this uh, cross-cultural experience to better under understand some people that we don't know already. Commit these things to you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like you to meet the uh, Leung family, David Leung. Uh, David will be joining us for the Confucian part of the talk. Um, Andrew, David, Michael, Vivian, and Nathan. Andrew has lived in China for over 15 years and will be sharing from his experience there. Uh, this is my family back in May. Uh, Kevin, with the, um, with the hassle turn, graduated from college in uh, May and Nathan graduated last year, and there is one E. This is uh, what we'd like to go over today with you. Um, first of all, a brief introduction to worldview. What is worldview? What is your worldview? What does it look like? What does it mean? And then uh, going into Buddhism, Confucianism, and then some reflection on our part on what that means for our lives. What is a worldview? A very basic definition of worldview might be a worldview or a vision of life is a framework or a set of fundamental beliefs through which we view the world and our calling and future in it. A worldview may be a commitment, a fundamental orientation of the heart. It can be expressed as a story or it can be very, um, very rigid, like a set of uh, presuppositions or assumptions which could be true or totally false. But all of us, whether we think about it or not, has a worldview. And all of us, whether we think about it or not, lives consistently with what we think our worldview is. Or maybe not so consistently. What kinds of questions does a worldview ask? What is the nature of the world around us? What is a human being? Um, where do we come from? 
We might say that we're a highly complex machine, a sleeping God, or a person made in the image of God. Uh, where, do, where do we come from? Um, what happens to, to us when we die? Are we go extinction? Or do we um, get to a higher stage? Are we born again into a new life, reincarnation? Or do we go to heaven to live with God? How do we know what's right or wrong? All these questions are questions that we ask when we're entering into worldview. I'd like you to meet uh, Mr. Riep, uh, to start off talking about a real live person who lived in central Thailand uh, 80 years ago. Uncle Riep grew up in the central plains of central Thailand. His father was a rice farmer. Um, and as he, he wasn't so much interested in rice farming, he wanted to become a teacher. And then when he was in his late 20s, early 30s, he began to notice some physical changes which really concerned him. He noticed um, a spot on his arm that was discolored. And then he noticed it became a little bit numb. And he thought, well, it's not really much. It's going to go away. But over the course of months and a year, he began to realize some pain was shooting down his arm. And then all of a sudden, there were some other changes that began to happen. And all of a sudden, he couldn't grasp things. And when I first came to know about uh, Mr. Riep, I saw him in a sala or uh, a rural clinic that some brand new foreigners had set up when they first arrived in central Thailand in the 1950s. And I met these people who are, who are different. From, what, from you and me, with different kinds of deformities, whose hands were different, who had deformities. And Mr. Riep went for all kinds of help. He went to the temple, and the Buddhist monks tried to help him, but they didn't have much to offer, took a lot of his money, and then went to some of the, um, some of the sort of witch doctor type people, and they had lots of poultices to put on his arm and his hand. And these were also expensive, but there was really nothing to do. His family became very worried, didn't know, didn't know what to do. But they knew they had to get him out of the house, so they built a shack for him behind the house and put him out. And Mr. Riep was beginning to experience what it was like to be a social outcast in his own, in his own family, in his own community. And then he heard that there were some foreigners who were around, who had some medicine, who had some experience. And he hesitated at first, but after on, he went to visit these people. Well, I have some worldview questions for you. Why was it that there were some foreigners in that part of Thailand in those days who could do something, but there was no one in Thailand who could do anything at that point? There weren't any hospitals in the area, and none of the local people knew what he had or knew what to do about it. But they knew that they had to, they knew that they had to, fear what it was, and they also knew that it was probably from something he had done in his last life, and so he was being punished, and so he was being put out of his home. We'll come back to Mr. Riep a little bit later. What is Buddhism? What does Buddhism teach? How did it start? Siddhartha Gautama was born around 563 BC. Nobody knows the exact year. But uh, correlated with our understanding of history, uh, about the time of the fall of the, of the northern kingdom and about he lived through the exile. 
when the, when the Jews were in exile in Egypt and in Babylon. He grew up into a very rich family uh, in the palace, and he had never seen anything outside the palace until he was 29 years old, and he wanted to get out of it all. He went out into a chariot, rode into the city, and saw things he had never seen before. He saw the reality of old age, of sickness, of death, and, and, and people who were poor, people who were begging. It changed his whole life, and he knew that he had to get away. He traded his palace garb for uh, the clothes of a beggar, and he went out to uh, meditate into the, um, into the wilderness to find out what this was all about. And what he came up with during that time has changed the lives of millions of people. He wanted to find out, how do I break this cycle of birth, suffering, death, and rebirth? And one of the things that he discovered in these early, early weeks and months and years of his new teaching was that he had to find the middle way, not very rich and not totally poor, uh, the way of having everything or having nothing. And so he continued to meditate, and on the 49th day, he became the enlightened one. The enlightened one means Buddha, his title and the name of what happened to him at that point. He went through India and taught for 45 years and died at the age of 80. Well, what the Buddha taught was a series that we can only we can only kind of rush through right now, but there's lots of information available for further study. We'll hit the outline of uh, what Buddhism is all about. The Four Noble Truths, the, eightfold, uh, the Noble Eightfold Path, the Middle Way, and finally Enlightenment. And we'll look at it in a couple of ways. I want to go through the, the theory, and then we want to look at the practice. And in terms of theory, there are not too many Thai people who really know much about the theory. A lot of them know the practice. They know the ritual. Um, I worked with a pediatrician, a Thai pediatrician, who became a Christian during his training in, uh, in, in Chiang Mai. And when we were out running once, I said, uh, Dr. Wirat, tell me, tell me what you believe as a Buddhist. And he either wouldn't or didn't want to. But it seemed to me like he really didn't know it. He wasn't interested in it anymore. But he could tell me what he did, what he did with his family, the temples that he went to, and what they did there as well. The Four Noble Truths. Remember, worldview in the back of your minds. Life leads to suffering. Suffering is caused by desire or craving then we are to extinguish that desire, and then we follow the Eightfold Path. And this was the first teaching of the Buddha after attaining nirvana, the essence of Buddhism. The Noble Eightfold Path. Wisdom, ethical conduct, and mental discipline is how we divide these eight, uh, these eight items on the path. The correct view, the correct intention, correct speech, correct action, correct livelihood, correct effort, correct mindfulness, and correct concentration. And when a young man goes into the temple to become a Buddhist monk, these are the things that they're taught through concentration, through reading the Bali and Sanskrit uh, uh, manuals, and they are aiming to become 
like the Buddha. The middle way, moderation, away from the extremes of self-indulgence and self-mortification. The middle ground between all things exist and nothing exists. Avoid the extremes of permanence and nihilism. And these are the things that the Buddha was said to have uh, understood during this period of this early period of time of his life before he became the Buddha. So when you hear the word nirvana, you think, well, that's the Buddhist concept of heaven. Um, that may give you some idea that it's toward the end of life, but it's not really uh, anything like our concept of heaven because nirvana for the, for the Buddhist is the beginning of nothingness or extinction. That's what they aim for, extinction. And so the word enlightenment can also mean awakening, understanding, uh, knowledge of our past lives, of the working of uh, karma or as gum, as we say in Thai, and reincarnation, the Four Noble Truths. This is all that the Buddha was to have learned uh, before he became enlightened. The theory. Buddhism, the practice. I asked one of my friends who's, um, who's a leader of uh, our organization in Thailand and said, in your mind, what is the essence of Buddhism? And he said, what's on the bottom layer of this triangle? It's what we call making merit. You want to make enough merit, do enough good deeds that outweighs your bad deeds so that when you are born again, when you are reborn, then you will be born into a higher state in life than you were before this existence. And that's their whole livelihood, their whole existence. To attain a better fate, a better reincarnation, and to eventually get to enlightenment or nirvana. So what does making merit look like? Making good, doing good. It looks like lighting jostics and bowing down before a spirit temple in the center of Bangkok or Chiang Mai or any number of large or small towns in Thailand. To break the hold of Buddhism, break the hold of fate. So you can be go to be blessed by a Buddhist monk. You can light jostics in front of your favorite shrine. And the shrine lady is before on the left is a very powerful, uh, thought to be a very powerful Hindu shrine in Bangkok. Or if you've ever been at a resort in Thailand and you get up uh, around sunrise, you'll see the monks on the beach going and asking for rice. And the Buddhist practitioners would put rice in the rice bowl and they would make merit through that action. Again, making merit in its many forms. Beating the drums, lighting jostics, bowing down to any god which is felt to have power. Although the Buddha said that all of these gods were under him and seeking enlightenment as well. One of the greatest ways that, uh, that parents can make merit is by sending their son as a novice into a local temple. And so think about a boy that you might have had a chance to talk to about Jesus and he wants to become a Christian. What kind of opposition do you think he'll get? You mean you're not going to go become a Buddhist monk so that we can make merit? Wow, an insult perhaps to the family. 
Thai funeral. Really the end. Those um, banners that the uh, Buddhist monks are holding on the back in Thai, it says, he's gone and he won't be back. He sleeps and he won't wake up. There is no resurrection. There is no escape. Despair. Hopelessness. And this is what the Dalai Lama, what the Dalai Lama has said. We must take direct responsibility for our own spiritual lives and rely on nobody and nothing. If another being were able to save us, surely he would have done so. It's time, therefore, that we help ourselves. Buddhist, Buddhism is the ultimate in self-help philosophy. There's uh, syncretism, we'll fly by this. Buddhism and Confucianism tend to blend into whatever the other cultural uh, beliefs are, especially animism, especially the spirit world. Hinduism, animism, ancestor worship. And what are the results to this? Buddhism in Thailand, high priority, high value, loyalty to the king, religion, family, Becoming a Christian is seen as disloyal, like becoming a traitor. Therefore, you can see it's very difficult for a Thai person to become a Christian. The fatalism of the funeral, after two centuries of proclamation of Christianity in Thailand, still less than half a percent are Christians. To be Thai is to be Buddhist. What can we do? This is, these are the area of Buddhist concentration in uh, China, some higher, some lesser. And this is the area, primary area of influence of Buddhism in East Asia. But realize that Buddhism is growing in almost every Western country around the world as well. well I'd like to turn things over to uh, Dr. David Lian, who will take us to another worldview, see if you can find some similar similarities and some differences. Handing over the guard here. There's one. Okay. Wow, this is really complicated. You see yeah. all I went through? Okay. And there are notes there if you want them. Great, thanks. Dr. David Leon. Great, thanks. Um, yeah, and um, I think for for myself anyway, having a chance to prepare for to talk about uh, worldview, it's it's hard, it's kind of hard because as, as Neil said, worldview is something that we we know, but we don't really. It's hard to put into words. And uh, and so as as we share these things, I think a lot of it is um, it was interesting to be able to put sort of who I who I am or what my family is, and try to put it into words and try to find a way to share that. Um, so I want to start with just this. This question to y'all: Asian stereotypes. Okay, <laughs> you know you're Asian when. <laughs> but I want to first ask you: What is your stereotype of your typical Asian American here? There's a point to all of this, but let me just ask you: What is your stereotype of your, of your typical Asian American? And it's okay. Just go ahead, my thick skin. So go ahead. Discipline. Discipline. Smart. 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 Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. What else? What? Are, what? Are, what? Okay, some. Okay, you've given me some some positives. How about some? What are some um, 
some negatives of a typical Asian stereotype. What do you, what, what comes to mind? So Cheap. Cheap. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Woo! Good one. Somebody with experience. Okay. Right. Sticking like kind of tight, clickish, clannish. Right. Very good. Yeah. Excellent. What else? Bad drivers. Bad drivers. <laughs> That's a that's a more recent development. <laughs> Good. What else? Double lids on everything. Okay. Okay. Overly prepared. <laughs> okay. What else? Appearances are very important. Thank you. That's good. Yeah. Saving face. Saving face. Yeah. Face is a big deal. Um, I was at a um, at a there was a we had a, these meetings for Asian American pastors in the Bay Area uh, in 2000. And 2011, and they were all saying, oh, man, this youth work is getting tougher and tougher. And I said, why? And they said, Jeremy Lin. And I said, why is that? He goes, well, now the parents say, not only do you have to go to Harvard, you have to get into the NBA now. <laughs> and so, like, the standards are getting higher and higher and higher. Yeah, so, um, anyway, well, there is a point to this. We'll, we'll, we'll go back and look at some of these things as soon as we, we'll talk about Confucian a little bit here. So, um, again, Confucianism in the modern Chinese worldview. Um, again, I, I'm, a, uh, I'm a family practice doctor working in China the last 18 years. I'm not a history major, although we have teammates that are. Uh, I, I'm not an Asian American studies major. So these are just observations, a bit from the outside, but also from my own, from my own life. Um, about a year after we got to China, Okay, so I got to China with like zero Chinese language and, and very little cultural understanding of actually who I, who my, even my own family. So showing up, I remember after about a year in China, we were at, um, my son was registering for preschool. And so we had, for preschool, we had to get a physical exam before. And we, so we were, there were like 50 sets of parents, each with their kid, in this little clinic getting our exam for preschool. And so we were crowding into the, we were crowding into the, into the little, all the kids had to have a blood test and everything. So we were into this little, tiny little lab room. And, you know, there were six parents, and then eight parents, and then ten parents, and then 15 parents. And, and then all our kids are in this tiny room, and it started getting more and more crowded to the point where, you know, all the kids were crying. And after a while, my son just joined the rest of the crowd and started crying. And this is before they had their blood drawn. <laughs> and, and, and after a while, I just got, I just got so angry that I just yelled out in English. I said, clear out. <laughs> so I just left the room and I was just very, very mad, very angry. Got in a taxi and started going back to, the, to, our, to, uh, to our dormitory. And as I was in that taxi going back to the um, dormitory, I was reading the signs on the side of the, um, painted on the, all the propaganda on the sides of the walls. It said, which means be a civil Taiyuan citizen. And I was saying, oh, there's no one that's civil. What is going on? You know, Chinese people aren't like this. You know, we, we shouldn't be rude. We shouldn't be, you know, cheat in school. We shouldn't do all these things. What is going on? So my idea of what a Chinese person would be was getting torn to pieces. And I was going through this typical level of culture shock <laughs> because it didn't fit. It didn't fit what I knew what it was to be Chinese. It, was, it, didn't, it didn't fit. And so um, in going to go over some of these things about Confucianism and the mo modern Chinese worldview, um, actually, to, maybe we can try to figure out why there was that level of tension, that level of difficulty in figuring out actually who I was and what China is and who Chinese people are.
So Confucianism, you know, you know, what is it? Is it a is it a worldview? Is it an ethic? Is it is it a religion? Is it or is it a way of life? Um, I found this very interesting quote. It said, "East Asians may profess to be all these things, but seldom do they cease being Confucians." And also, Confucian thought has impacted patterns of government, society, education for 2,000 years. And this, is, if you look at this, this is not just individuals, right? It's impacted society, families, communities, nations for over 2,000 years. And very, very deep. I remember one time as a teenager, my, 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 my dad said, all right, no matter what you do, the most important thing is family. And I thought, oh, that's a good Christian thing to say. But he didn't, wasn't coming from a Christian perspective. He just said, this is the most important thing. I asked him why. He couldn't explain. But he said, this is the most important thing, family. You never forget family. So it's a very, very deep, deep. Uh, so just a quick, quick thing about uh, quick history. Again, about the same time. Uh, as, uh, for, uh, for Buddhism, about, about that time, 500 years before Christ, a lot of things were happening in the world, and something was going on. Um, so this fellow Confucius, or Kongzi, he, um, he was from a family that was aristocracy, but by the time he was born, actually they were in poverty. It was a poor family. Um, and by the time he was three years old, his father passed away. So his mother actually was his first teacher. He was a guy who had an incredible desire to learn couldn't learn. He's always asking questions, always trying to learn. Um, and he actively looked for teachers. He sought out teachers. Sorry, I, calligraphy, I that twice. I guess he did a lot of calligraphy. But um, <laughs> So you look at these things. It's not just straight study, right? So his, his, his six arts included um, you know, music, archery, charioteering. I didn't know that. Um, and arithmetic. I guess the arithmetic part stuck, right? Anyway, so... Um, <laughs> He was, he was one of the first teachers in, in China to actually make education his life goal. And his thought of making education available to all, at that point, all men. But all to, as a general uh, uh, opportunity for all people to be educated. Actually, due to his, his, uh, his, his own value of integrity and morality, he was not very popular <laughs> with the leaders. In fact, he, he was a bit, little bit too, too on the up and up, and so he, uh, he was not able to, um, uh, to be totally influential within government. But he was an excellent teacher uh, and teaching all these things. So by the time he died at age 73, he had 72 of his students who had mastered you know, these, these arts, and he had over 3,000 people who claimed to be his his followers and Confucian continued to develop over the years after his death. His his students, his disciples, um, codified and clarified and you know that the whole process of what it was to for this Confucian value. So it's hard to know exactly you know which one of these actually came from him and which ones came came later on. But the historical context at the time of his birth was this: that uh, there was a there was an understanding at that time that there was this thing called the mandate of heaven. And that this mandate of heaven was higher than government, it was higher than the, than the emperor, higher than the rulers, and that if the emperor was not ruling well, then the mandate of heaven was higher than he was and would mandate that he be removed and somebody else come to take his place. It was a moral law that was above the rulers. Also, um, that Chinese culture was very, very rich in, in, in values, in, in ritual, in, um, in reverence. Um, and... There was over 2,000 years of this tradition even before Confucius. So this wasn't like a brand new thing that he was able to, to put into uh, practice, but it was there before. Um, and at that time of his birth, the kingdom, the dynasty was falling apart and in moral decline. And so he saw 
um, that education was a way to change that. His, his basic um, belief system, he believed that man was basically good. That man was basically good and that he could transform himself through self-development. And that, mainly, that meant education. Education not in the sense of learning more knowledge, but also the idea of virtue, of that knowledge changing and transforming our lives, not just for the sake of learning more knowledge. Um, right, and, and that this virtue, this personal quality was essential uh, for someone to, to, to be able to lead, to be able to influence. And his aim was not just for personal enlightenment, but it actually was to transform your families, to transform your community, to transform society. So it was much bigger. He, was, he wasn't afraid to be involved in the system. In fact, he wanted to be engage the system in order to bring about change. And the golden rule, according to Confucius, was do not do to others what you would not want them to do <laughs> unto you. Interesting, isn't it? So do not to do unto others what, they would, what you would not want them to do unto you. And he, he, he didn't think of what he was teaching as a religion. Um, he, um, he, in fact, he, I don't know whether this quote was actually a real quote, but the, it's been passed down that, you know, it's not what, it's not what we know about, you know, it's, it's too hard to even know this life. Why worry about what comes afterwards? And so he focused on the present. He focused on the present. He was not against religion, but chose rather not to focus on it. So, so up to this point, we can sort of quickly do a little bit of summary. So in thinking back of what, what Neil shared about Buddhism, there are some things that are very similar, but some things that are a little bit different. In his own personal history, right, he grew up in a poor family, and he worked very, very hard to, to overcome those difficulties. And so it's actually not a, it's not a fatalistic kind of thinking. He was, the idea is that we can transform ourselves and improve ourselves and be better. Um, he had a very strong emphasis, as you know, on education, um, very, very strong. Very strong work ethic. He worked very, very hard and, and uh, devoted you know, all of his time and energy. Um, and, he, and he focused on not so much just thinking about future things, but he looked at the past. And he looked deep into the past. Looked at all the tradition of China. Looked at all the, the virtue of family, how society worked, and said, we can learn from the past in order to inform our present and our future. And we have to grasp that past in order to do that. And he wasn't afraid to engage the system. In fact, he, that was his, his, his desire was to do that. So um, we'll do a few quick things. The five key, uh, we're going to look at the relationships, five virtues, and four values. Um, and this is, it's, it's, it's really quick, and I, I feel bad doing this because it just kind of brings all this stuff down to just a three, slide, three PowerPoint slides. <laughs> um, but it's obviously, you know, for him it was a lifetime of, of, of learning and observing and trying to pass that on. So the five relationships, and see, um, as you look at these, see where you might see among, among agents today, what are some of the important things. Um, so one relationship, father to son, father to son. Uh, and this illustrated the value of, of affection, of filial piety and respect. Very, very important. And this is the one my dad tried to <laughs> emphasize very strongly when I was a teenager. I wonder why. Hmm. Um, husband and wife. Uh, and this is about the gendered roles, the proper roles within a family. And... Um, at least four of these five relationships are actually hierarchical. We're not talking about a, a level relationship. We're talking about a hierarchical relationship. So husband and wife and the gendered roles. Elder brother, younger brother. What is order? What is proper? Uh, and also, uh, you know, dealing with respect there. Um, ruler to subject. 
and the ruler having a chance to express what is righteous, what is just, and what is good, and for the subject to express loyalty to the ruler. And then finally, friend to friend. This was the only one that was actually on the same, that was uh, to, to appear to peer. All the other ones are hierarchical, but the friend to friend, uh, faithfulness and fidelity. Okay, so these are the these are the five key relationships. Um, some of the references they talked about student to teacher or teacher to student as another relationship, but but that uh, uh, depending on which source they kind of gave different different ones. And then the uh, five key virtues and four main values. Um, so as you can see, there's um, you know righteousness or this benevolence, righteousness, uh, ritual, wisdom and trustworthiness were these main virtues. And then, interestingly, the values, they, they um, hit righteousness on that one as well. <laughs> um, I want to just uh, emphasize a few. Uh, just As far as the virtues, one is the, the idea of benevolence. And it's actually not just the idea of being, of being benevolent, but the idea that... Um, um, sort of all that is, that is right, that is correct, that is proper. And... Um, you know, as Neil was sharing about Buddhism, there's this, those, the, the eightfold ways. That, so the, it's actually quite similar. In many, many areas, there's a lot of overlap. But the idea that what is, what is right and what is um, proper, and then how those things are expressed in ritual. So those, so those two actually are, are among the five very, very key as far as how life is to be lived. So what is, what is, what is proper, what is good, and also the expression of how that properness and that goodness is, is lived out. And then finally, in the, the values, the idea of filial piety. And that filial piety is more than just what was in the family, because his, his belief was that as the family is able to, to live out and express proper relationship, that that family would be able to model for their community what is good and proper. And as that community grows, they would be able to actually even impact a nation, an entire nation. And so that, as a family being the basic unit, family being the basic unit. So very interesting. Um, they did this all from a from a secular perspective, without without thought of God. Um, so just it, interestingly, after his death, all these things continued to happen. Um, that he his curriculum became the basis for Chinese education for many many years after his death. Um, that uh, became the actual state ideology within uh, uh, 300 years of his death. Within 500 years of his death, there were actually temples, uh, many, many temples in the country that were actually required to make sacrifices to him. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure he had that in mind, but that's what it became uh, a, a, a way of worship. And that, con- that tradition became the moral fabric for Chinese society. Um, the interesting thing is over history, you know, there were, as the different dynasties came and went, Confucianism was in favor and out of favor, in favor, out of favor, and that happened several times. But every time it went out, within 100 years, 200 years, it came back in again. And that's interesting to me because in, within modern China, since 1949, there was a, initially a big effort to just totally wipe out all that was old. And so Confucianism was out. It was gone. It was The, the government tried to just wipe it all out. And then in 2006, 2007... You know, the government started to talk about what it is to have a harmonious society and to have those good relationships. And they were all of a sudden, Confucianism was making a comeback. <laughs> and so as I was looking at this, it was, yeah, this, this cyclical pattern of him being in favor and out of favor, in favor, it's like it's kind of coming back again. 
So very interesting. Even today in modern China, that is uh, that is ongoing. Um, this is a just a maybe I should have put this case a little bit later on, but I'm, I'll, I'll present the case and then we'll go back and talk about what the values were here. Um, so Mr. Yin was a 54-year-old male. He presented to our clinic with several month history of of, uh, of a chronic cough and chest wall pain. X-ray showed a right hilar fullness and recommendation for further study. So we sent him to uh, Alice Chen, one of my colleagues who was taking care of him, sent him to have a bronchoscopy, and the, TB, and the report came back as tuberculosis. So she treated him for his TB several months. He didn't get better. Actually, he got worse. And a few months later, he died of lung cancer. Um, so after, when he was very, very ill and it was clear that it was lung cancer, we went back and said, you know, here's the bronchoscopy report. What's going on with this? And so we, we asked the family. His daughter uh, worked with us, and, and actually she, be, she, she became a Christian, and actually before her father passed away, he was able to lead him to the Lord as well. But it was, um, so we were asking, what happened with this report? What does it say, TB? And so she went back and talked to her, her niece who took him to, the, to that bronchoscopy report. And actually, the niece was told, the, was told by the physician, you know, I'm going to write down TB on the diagnosis. But he actually has lung cancer. But we can't tell him because he would be devastated by the diagnosis. And so the niece was supposed to tell the rest of the family, but she just didn't do that. <laughs> and so we, were, so we just kept treating him for his tuberculosis that actually was never tuberculosis. And so we think back about that golden rule, right? We said, it was like, don't do unto others what you don't want them to do unto you. And the idea that within a family you would care for each other. And, you know, you wouldn't want to find out about this diagnosis, so we won't tell our father about this diagnosis. We just encourage him, treat him, make sure he's well. And we won't talk about it. And the whole system, I mean, the doctor knew that, enough to write on his report tuberculosis, but then to tell, because he, you know, the, the patient's going to see the report, right? So, but to tell the niece that what actually is going on is he has, he has cancer. So that's an interesting way that even, you know, some of these values of, 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 uh, of care and concern of family are passed down in a way that, yeah, it affected us in our clinic because we, <laughs> we actually didn't know what his, what his diagnosis was. Uh, so uh, anyway, so that's Confucianism and those values in the past. There are a few things that have happened in the recent past that have changed how that is expressed. And so modern Chinese culture, you may, you may not or you will not see all of those things expressed in the form that we might see in, in more traditional Chinese culture. So 1949, um, People's Republic of China came into, into being, uh, New China, um, and so the ones that we're able to remember that happened before that are mainly those that are, that are older, right? It's been 60, 60, 60 years. Um, the Cultural Revolution from 66 to 76 was, an, was a very impactful time in China because it, 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 it just threw all the relationships into disorder. And uh, the government, uh, the leaders were, were, were the main thing, and including even those closest relationships were torn apart because people had to report on each other, including your own family members. So it pushed those relationships to a point where um, people learned not to trust. And it was a very difficult thing. So those are the people that are now in their 50s and 60s. Um, economic reform happened in the 80s, and these are the adults in China right now. All of a sudden, the opportunity was there to make money. Making money was a glorious thing, and it became the, the goal of, of most people to be able to, to work hard, to strive hard, to make a lot of money. And we're seeing that a lot now. 
uh, one child policy which began around 1979 and and the result of that is you have all these families with one child and two parents and four grandkids and everything is focused on those on those those kids Um, and so those kids will learn that yes I am the center of the universe (laughs) and so where is their worldview coming from I had an intern that I've been working with for the last 15 months and and uh, she'd ask me all these questions, and I could tell by her questions that uh, from the questions is where she asked it, what TV show she was watching the day before. Um, and so she, one day she asked me some questions, and I said, well, what did you watch yesterday? She said, well, for the last few weeks, we're watching Desperate Housewives. <laughs> so I was like, okay, that is the source of her world we were in. I was watching Desperate Housewives. Not a good thing. Okay. And then June 4th, that's uh, Tiananmen, 1989, and that impacted a lot of the intellectuals at the time. Uh, because their trust was in the system and in the government, all of a sudden that that didn't work out. And so these are major events that happened in China's recent history that have taken those worldview concepts and just kind of tossed them all around. And, and, and I think China is still in the process of trying to figure out where where to land on that. Um, and Chinese people are very, very practical people. Um, so whatever works, we'll do it. Whatever works would do it. And, and, and China has been able to take that and to be able to, you all see the results of, of China that's standing up and doing some amazing things. I just saw a report the other day where they, you know, they just sent their, um, a, a, their, their lunar, I don't know, exploratory craft. It's gone to the moon and back. And so, you know, so these things are happening, you know. Uh, so a few ideas about uh, current Chinese worldview. Are we almost out of time or... Okay, good. real quickly. So hierarchy versus harmony. The idea that, that uh, hierarchy is, is, is expected normal normal thing in, 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 in Chinese thinking. Uh, group orientation. So the thinking is that the individual is there for the sake of the group, not the other way around. That is, individuals who are there for the sake of the, of the collective and not, and not for, for each individual person. Uh, the idea of relationships. Chinese relationships are very, very interesting and very complicated. And so we think about, in the Western thinking, we, we think straight lines. Uh, in Chinese relationships, it's very much a web, a uh, very complicated network. And then someone has already brought up the idea of, of face. Um, and this is not just face for an individual, but face for that individual affects face for the whole family and for that group. And so it's not just me. It's, you know, if, if I lose face, I lose face for my whole family, for my whole group. And then time orientation, um, again, Confucius was big into looking in the past, looking to the future. And so it's not like this point in time, but it's this period of time. Okay. All right, so something. We've just heard an overview of the views, the worldviews of probably a quarter of the people of the earth. Um, Thank you very much, David. So reflect on what you've heard. Uh, it's been a um, thank you very much, David. Um, I think we uh, sort of complemented uh, the areas of what uh, Asian people feel and believe. One thing I wanted to ask you was, uh, you know, people love to go to Thailand, love to go to the Orient, love to visit there. Why? What are, what are some of the positive things about Asian, Asian cultures that you like? Great food. Great food. Hospitality. Hospitality. 
very polite, very accepting. Um, they want to make you feel good, which has its pros and cons. And anybody who's ever asked for directions in Asia will know that they want you to feel good, not, not necessarily know that you're going to get to your destination. Um, one of the things that you noticed was that neither Confucianism or Buddhism uh, talk about a god. Buddha, Buddha says he wasn't a god. There are no gods. Confucianism does not talk about a god. Wherever there's a philosophy or a religion that doesn't talk about gods are not meeting the spiritual void that exists in, in people's lives. And that's why they tend to show up in front of spirit houses um, throughout uh, the countries that we're, that we're talking about. Um, the charms and amulets. I just lifted that off a prayer letter of a friend who lives in Los Angeles. Uh, a Thai Buddhist in Los Angeles had become a Christian and one day he took all these things to church and wanted the leaders in the church to deal with them. Because these things are real power in people's lives. They wear them around their necks, around their belts. They have them throughout their homes and they're part of the spiritual forces. The verse we read in Ephesians 6 this morning. They're very important. We can't minimize them and we have to deal with them. There is a, a spiritual vacuum in these people's lives. Here's um, a, um, an Indian the theologian has written, since Buddhism denies the existence of God, Christian theism is an incomprehensible illusion to the Buddhist mind. Hard to even know um, about a God. So what do we do about this? And these are some approaches. Uh, scholars have said, how do we dialogue with Buddhists? How do we dialogue uh, with a Buddhist Confucian uh, link and many Christians many people have become Christians in China and Mongolia at times of uh, economic upheaval social upheaval and there are times to be praying for peoples and there's a tremendous growth of the church in Mongolia right now um, usually in these contexts uh, John 3.16 does not work uh, David was telling me it may work in a Confucian context in, in Thai Buddhist context, usually not, unless you have a lot of time to spend to explain the differences, which you usually don't have. To take suffering, what does a Buddhist do with a worldview that is very highly involved with suffering? And what do Christians do? It's, suffering is central to the Christian belief. What do we do with it? Some have used Ecclesiastes, meaninglessness. What does the preacher who wrote Ecclesiastes do with meaninglessness? And what happens to the meaninglessness and hopelessness in a Thai Buddhist worldview. And then finally, our pastor in Bangkok came up with a, a Thai meekness or humility approach, which again is basically a learning, Take a, go in as an American in a learning mode, not in a teaching or directing mode, and make friends with uh, your Thai Buddhist uh, co colleagues. And then long-term friendships. And this is where I think medical missions come in, comes in at its, very, at its very strength. This is Uncle Ria, and this is how I knew him in the last years that I worked at this little hospital in central Thailand. He was very deformed. Uh, he did go to the hospital, and he did have some surgery. But uh, over time, uh, the surgery didn't, uh, didn't do him a, a lot of good. When I knew him, he, he, um, he just had stumps for fingers and didn't have much left of toes or feet. But when he got to Monterham, he met other people with leprosy. He met nurses who cared about him, 
who dressed his wounds, who touched him. And through the long time that he was there and over compassionate seeing the love of Christ, not only hearing about it, he did become a Christian. And one of the things that the uh, nurses in those days, back in the 60s and 70s, they said to leprosy patients, what did you used to do? What do you like to do? What are your hobbies? And helped a lot of people who had been outcasts in life regain some of what they had lost. And Uncle Reap found out that he had the gift of music. And he, along with the other people in this uh, picture, some of whom have leprosy and some of whom don't, were some of the pioneers in, um, in creating indigenous Thai worship music. There's nothing wrong with the, with the missionaries and the century before taking all of our hymns. We had nothing else. Translated them into Thai and all that. But with the Thai, um, with the Thai cant and the Thai musical uh, rhythms, was able to take Thai tunes, put uh, Christian words to it, and really revolutionized Thai music. And so we have uh, playing Thai Pai Rock, uh, melodious Thai songs, Thai hymns, and the Green Book and the Red Book mostly put together by uh, Thai leprosy Christians. Uh, amazing bringing, uh, bringing uh, life out of ashes in people's lives that we thought had no value uh, what, whatsoever. So we really see in central Thailand there was – Uncle Riap had nowhere to turn. And here were foreigners, Christians, missionary doctors and nurses – who could provide something that just wasn't there. Uncle Rhea found nothing in Buddhism. The concept of suffering and fate just relegated him to having done something wrong before. I don't want to be too harsh. I want to be realistic. But there were people with a different worldview that there is a God. There is order in the universe. We can do research. We can find out things that work and offer these to someone who looks like an outcast, Uncle Rhea and give him a new life. So Jesus offered him a new faith, a new life, and a new hope. And we praise God for that. These are ways in which we can pray for Buddhists. Um, and uh, I will close us in prayer. We have a few minutes left. If uh, there are any questions, uh, probably can't answer your questions, but you can ask the questions. Uh, be glad to hear from any of you. Um, you've been on a journey around the world. It's a different life. It's a different faith. Uh, what are you thinking? What are some of your questions? You guys know more than I do. You don't even have any questions. David, did you have any 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 uh, concluding comments? Thanks. Thanks very much. You know, one of the conflicts I had in Thailand was the issue of truthfulness and truthfully, and I never quite got. Through that, although I must admit to becoming a little more Buddhist about truth telling, I wonder if, if you felt the same way through your. In John, other words, uh, you know, stark truth telling to patients sometimes was was not what they wanted. But at the same time, many patients did come wanting to know what actually was wrong. With them. Yeah, this is John Gibson uh, worked in Thailand for 20 plus years, asking, well, what about truth telling? Uh, basic, and uh, piggybacking onto what David shared, uh, that, that was a great story, and anybody who's worked in Asia knows that knows that story. 
not quite so stark perhaps. It's usually relatives of a patient with a bad diagnosis begging you not to tell them the truth. And so we deal with this all the time. Um, I think it was I think it was a little bit hurtful in David's uh, case because the extent of the deceit of putting the wrong diagnosis on a sheet that led doctors to treat a wrong disease and giving people the sense of hope I think made it very difficult. I think for those of in the those of us in the West who value the truth telling I think we do need to know when is not telling the truth when is not telling the truth more compassionate and the right thing to do. I think in, you know, it's an ethical question where you're weighing values. Um, in, in, in my work in Thailand, I felt that if someone was older and he'd be dying, you know, in a relatively short period of time, if you pulled the wool over his eyes and the relatives didn't want him to know and he didn't want to know, then I think we should probably bend and go in the direction of their wanting us to not tell the whole truth uh, out of love in that situation. Where there were, uh, we we've all had young people's in uh, young people in their 30s and 40s, with family uh, decision makers and family and uh, family members wanted us to lie to people like that. Were they to be thinking about the future? How were they were going to spend their money with a kind of diagnosis that they got? And I tended to hang more onto the, you know, trying to have the family see that it was a more compassionate thing to tell them the truth so that they could deal with the amount of time that they had left. Um, so that, there are two examples of patients that I'm thinking in the back of my mind of how I, you know, I didn't remain 100% in the truth camp, and I didn't remain 100% trying to tell people just what they wanted to hear. David, help me. value of maintaining and, um, and caring for in that relationship was more important than the value of truth-telling. And so, there was, you know, I think in the Asian thinking, there's no inconsistency at all uh, of, of emphasizing that. That's, that's the main value. And so, I, I think we need to see it, you know, as actually it's for, it's for the sake of the relationship. Yeah, thank you. That's a very good question. Yeah, I really, because that takes us into a lot of areas that that talk about the conflict that we deal with and the challenge in working in an Asian culture. Uh, yes? That's a good question, too. Uh, John has found out in his hospital in, in East Thailand, like I did in Central Thailand, a lot of the Thai in those places were going to the foreign hospitals because they did not trust their Thai doctors. But it wasn't just about the truth-telling. It was how they were treated, how they weren't given the, uh, the best treatment options that were available. There were a lot of things go going on. And like David and John and I were talking about uh, truth, relationship, compassion, these are all ethical concepts and we're balancing them all the time and we can't give 100% at each ethical value all the time and give good treatment. Uh, so they're, they're the challenges that we're dealing with. I mean, the challenges in this country as well, but they're, they're, uh, it's in more stark contrast when you get to East, to East Asia. Thank you. Yes. Ginger, yes, please. Yes. 
Speak up. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ginger. Ginger and Chao Ching, would you please, would you both please stand up? These are colleagues working who worked with David Liang for many years uh, in Evergreen in central China. So we're very thankful that you're here. Yeah. Thank you, Ginger. That is a very, very good comment. Uh, uh, you saw the, the Asian, the Buddhist Confucian view towards death. Very fatalistic. Um, you're gone and you, and you can't escape. You're not coming back. There is no hope. There is tremendous fear uh, in death. And that's something else that we need to know. They're trying to help uh, allay some of that fear. But uh, Ginger shared that she takes this as an opportunity to share about what we believe about our God and what we believe about what he's done for us and where we go when we die. Uh, that's excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. So glad you showed up. God bless you. Yeah.